The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to One Hour at a Time. I hope you're having a great Monday. Um, we're one day closer to spring, which is always a good thing. Um, today we've got a really interesting show for you. Um, we're going to talk uh, with Doug Tiemann, who is the president and CEO of Karen Treatment Centers, and he's been there since 1995. And Doug has spent um, 30 years in the addiction treatment field, um, in treatment center industry and in leadership positions. He began his career with the Hazelden Foundation and has served as chairman of the National Association of Addiction Treatment Providers, a member of the American College of Addiction Treatment Administrators. He's also currently a board member of the National Council on Alcoholism and Drug Dependence and the American Foundation for Addiction Research. And he serves on Behavioral Healthcare Editorial Advisory Board. Um, following undergraduate degrees from both Concordia and Northwood Universities, uh, Doug completed the Minnesota Management Institute at the University of Minnesota and received an honorary Doctorate of Laws degree from Concordia University. He's recipient of several awards, including uh, Berks County Chamber of Commerce, um, quote, Large Business Person of the Year, in 2004, an Eastern Pennsylvania Business Journal Spotlight Award in 2005. Um, welcome, Doug. Well, thank you so much. And uh, wow, when I, when I heard you uh, say all those things, I didn't realize all of that had happened. That uh, it, it impressed me, if no one else. So, so thanks for uh, reciting all those accolades. Well, you're welcome. You're welcome. Um, so, uh, you know, I. I really enjoyed your book. I, I must say to everybody that one of the things we're going to talk about is how leadership lessons can be applied to every age and stage of life. And also we're going to weave in the epidemic of addiction among seniors. And they may sound like they're not related, but um, they are. And, and Doug is going to do a masterful job of, of uh, um, integrating those two subjects for us. But I guess I would like to begin, Doug, with talking about your book, Flying Over the Pig Pen, Lessons... Uh, leadership lessons from growing up on a farm, and um, I really enjoyed it. I, I there, there's a great quote in it that I'm going to talk about later. But as I said to you earlier, this is a, as much a tribute to your father as it is um, talking about leadership lessons and and just the value of common sense and leadership. I mean, that was one theme over and over again um, is knowing knowing your audience or knowing your farm and really understanding the cycles of, of the seasons and the cycles of leadership. And um, you, you had a really uh, smart dad. Yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting. Um, and, and thanks for, for mentioning the book, uh, Flying Over the Pig Pen. And I'll, I'll just 
mention a couple things about that. Pig pen is not meant to be derogatory in, in any way. Uh, when I talk about the book, I, I love to say that everybody starts somewhere. I happen to start on a pig farm, pork farm. In fact, I you know, jokingly say we like calling it a pork farm because we thought that sounded a little more sophisticated. But, but everybody starts somewhere, and I happen to start on a pig farm. And the, and the idea was that uh, from wherever we start, if we apply some certain fundamental lessons in our life, we can fly over that. We can, you know, we can accomplish more if, if that is something that we intend to do. And, and my dad would always uh, talk to myself and my four brothers about the fact that he was not an educated man, but he was going to teach us everything that he knew. And uh, it's, it's amazing. You, you, you mentioned common sense. My dad said common sense, unfortunately, is not all that common. And, uh, and so he tried to, to teach us lessons, um, typically by telling us a story, using something that happened routinely on the farm, and uh, th- that story would have a lesson, that lesson would have some, some uh, fundamental principles that we would apply to, to life, and he would say, follow those, and you can be successful in whatever you pursue, and you get to be you get to be sort of the judge of whatever it is you want to pursue. If, if, if you take my family, for example, five boys, one of the brothers decided he wanted to pursue continuing to be a farmer. So he's uh, our fifth generation farmer uh, in our family. But the other four, uh, I'm a CEO of, um, of, a, of care and treatment centers. I have two brothers that her, have earned PhDs, uh, and I have another brother who's a lawyer. So something about those lessons uh, certainly worked for, for all five of us, and that's what I really try to share in the book, Flying Over the Pig Pen, because they can apply to anyone at any stage of, of life. So can you give us an example of one of the lessons you learned on the farm that you uh, transferred to leadership? Yeah, um, yeah. Thanks for thanks for mentioning that. Uh, and by the way, I should just mention flying over the pig pen. You can uh, the easiest way to get it is it, at Amazon.com. I may mention that several times. Just uh, uh, and 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 the nice thing is uh, a lot of people have been uh, have been uh, purchasing it. And in fact, just last week I found out they they were briefly out, but they've they've restocked. So so no worries. You can uh, you can always get it. Um, but one of the things that I really liked was a, was a story that he uh, told all of my brothers and I when we turned 18, which he talked about it being a kind of uh, important w- lesson about life. And he talked about how as a child, or not as a child, as a teenager, he had to go into town, uh, get some chickens in a cage, bring it back. And, and, and the real short version of the story was he ended up having a little mishap losing the chickens, and ultimately asked the neighbors for some help to try to, to, to corral the chickens, finally brought them back, and ended up with actually more chickens than he started with because uh, some of the chick- neighbors' chickens uh, got commingled with it. But, but the lesson that he talked about the story was not where did the chickens come from. He said if you look at what happened, he took responsibility for the situation that he was in. He realized he couldn't address it himself, so he asked for help. He worked hard along with the neighbors. He changed his behavior once the chickens were corralled. He decided to walk the bicycle the rest of the way home, and then somehow, amazingly, he got more than he bargained for. And, and that was kind of the fundamental lesson that our dad talked to us about. He said, you guys are all born on a farm. No one in the family's ever gone to college before. You can either make that as an excuse or you can embrace it. And he talked about that's the first thing for all of us. We come from somewhere. 
maybe you grow up in the inner city, maybe you have a handicap, maybe uh, your family has no money, no opportunity. He said you can embrace that and it's your responsibility to do that. It's much better to do that than, than make an excuse. He talked a lot about asking people for help. Uh, he said there's uh, a people uh, who know far more than, than we do, and he said, and oftentimes, unfortunately, we don't know what we don't know. So learn how to ask other people for help. And a major part of the book is finding a mentor. How do you work with a mentor? And that really segues into the third lesson, which is working hard. And the, the book talks about developing a five-year plan. How do you hold yourself accountable for it? What goes into the five-year plan, including such things as determining what kind of values you want to be known for? What do you want to achieve? What's important to you? Talks about how you modify your behavior to be successful and then at the end, how you do indeed get more than you bargain for. So that's kind of the, uh, is if I had to, uh, like a crown jewel of the book, that's my crown jewel story. The, the book has about 33 different stories like that. They all have lessons like that. And then they give you, then I provide you tools on how do you apply that to your life. You know, as you as you were talking, I'm thinking, I don't know that many leaders that are comfortable asking for help. Um, that isn't always a characteristic that you find in people in senior leadership. You know, you know that is that is a, a great point, Mary. I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, and and there is, uh, I, I think, there is some type of uh, illusion that uh, once you become a leader, you need to know everything. You need to be so confident, and while confidence and knowledge and expertise are certainly important attributes for a leader. Uh, I also think being inquisitive, uh, asking others for help, getting advice from experts who know more than you. Uh, In fact, one of the things you may remember, since you read the book, you may remember one story I I talk about is that uh, I oftentimes refer to uh, the title of president means that I know absolutely nothing about everything. And I oftentimes use sort of self-deprecating humor like that to, you know, to demonstrate to folks that I want to continue to learn. I want to continue to learn more. And the thing that's fascinating about uh, what people look for in leaders, and I share this survey in the book, is that they, that most people are looking for honesty, integrity, vision, and values. Uh, which makes an interesting uh, observation as we look to select our, our uh, president of the United States about uh, you know what you know what what is important um, and and it's interesting as we do now have exit polls asking people like who do you think is trustworthy? Trustworthy and vision are really key key leaders. You don't have to be an expert on everything, but you certainly need to be trustworthy and visionary. Exactly. Although it's been my experience in this industry that those are not always the common denominators for a lot of uh, places or people. So, um, you know, you're you're exactly right, and 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 I think that's what gives us, uh, you know, again a, a lot of opportunity. I, I I appreciate you mentioning at the beginning that the book can be available or, or applicable for all ages. Um, I probably initially, I originally wrote the book for the employees at Karen Treatment Centers. When I became president in 1995, I wanted to 
reshape the culture. And so I began to sort of teach employees about values, vision, decision-making, and, and, and eventually, some five years later, uh, put all that down in a book. And then 10 years later or so, we, we ended up getting it, it published. But as I read the book, I kind of said, you know, it's really applicable for or sort of three groups. The, you know, one group is certainly the group that just, uh, I would call, graduates from college, looking sort of like I have all this information and expertise and knowledge. Now what? How do I put together a plan for my career? The book is terrific for that. The second is uh, what I would call individuals whose career is in neutral or whose life is in neutral, uh, you know, hey, I've been in the same position, same job, same whatever for 10 years, and I wonder if there's anything more. The book is great for that. And then the third is for those of us whose lives have been interrupted by some type of um, event. Maybe it's health-related, maybe through no fault of our own, our company downsized and we have don't have a job. And it's also great for people who enter retirement and talking about kind of the senior issue of of, of What's my purpose now? And I think and the book can help one figure out what is important to me in my life. And, uh, and when we talk more about the uh, growing epidemic of addiction among seniors, this lack of purpose and sort of change of lifestyle is one of the real mitigating factors that has led to individuals over 60 being the fastest growing population of, um, of addicts in our nation today. And we'll be right back to talk more about that after this commercial break. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Tune in every Tuesday for C. diff, spores, and more with hosts Nancy Karala and Dr. Chandra Bali Ghosh. Our program is to provide information about C. diff, healthcare-associated infections, and more. Nancy is a C. diff survivor, healthcare professional, and the founder and executive director of the C. diff Foundation. And Dr. Ghosh is the chairperson of research and development for the C. diff Foundation. Together with their guests, we'll explore infection prevention, treatments, environmental safety, and more. Listen every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Health & Wellness. We are bombarded daily with information about beauty products and anti-aging treatments. Do you know how they have been tested? Are they truly going to make a change or just take the change out of your pocket? Tune in to Shelly's Show and Tell with host Shelly Hancock. We'll bring you the top-rated skincare products and treatments tested by Real Transformation Skin Care Centers. We'll motivate you to make the best changes. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. 
your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods, and our guest today is Doug Tiemann, who is the president and CEO of Karen Treatment Centers, um, which is located in Wernersville, Pennsylvania, outside of Philly, about an hour outside of Philly, Doug? That is correct. That is correct. And and we also have facilities in uh, Palm Beach County, Florida, uh, as well as offices in Boston, New York City, Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., and Atlanta. And um, you just keep growing and growing, which is a great thing. Well, so unfortunately, we to... <laughs> unfortunately, addiction keeps growing, so I guess that's part of, uh, part of all of it. Yeah. It really is a national tragedy. It, it's, it's a tremendous tragedy, and I know um, New Hampshire's been getting a lot of airplay. Uh, we had three people die in 24 hours last weekend, and... You know, we've had so many challenges just because the state hasn't wanted to pay for addiction treatment. We just got the Medicaid waiver this year for uh, Medicaid to pay for addiction treatment. And so we're so far behind the curve in terms of having, um, there, there can't be treatment on demand because there's not the capacity for it. But, you know, what we see over and over again, and I'm thinking it's probably the same with seniors, is that people get get injured or they have surgery and they're put on pain medication, which they then, um, they're put on pain medication for too long. And for some people, it just tips them into addiction. And so it's just a, it's a horrible cycle of opiate addiction. Yeah, the opiate addiction uh, issue in the United States is, is certainly become a real tragedy and uh, because it is of epidemic proportion, and I really believe, it, in fact, if there's any, uh, as we look at all of the presidential um, debates and campaigns, one of the things that I guess is a good byproduct of a bad situation, and the bad situation being opiate addiction, is that the good product is that for the first time that I can remember that every presidential candidate is talking about it, not as an afterthought, but it's something that actually does emerge as a fairly significant issue. Um, Every presidential candidate has been reasonably comfortable talking about how addiction has impacted their own personal family. Uh, Most of the candidates have laid out a level of plan on how to deal with it. And just to, to kind of put it in perspective today, a drug overdose now annually kills more Americans than uh, car accidents. And I think that that is alarming. I think there was a time when we thought about drug addiction and drug overdoses as maybe being kind of an inner city issue, especially when we typically thought of that of heroin. Heroin has now become a suburban, a a suburb problem. Um, and that has been really fueled by the just explosion of opiates. And just to, uh, to put the 
opiate use of our country into perspective. Uh, Americans, the United States of America population is about five and a half percent of the world's population. Yet we consume 99% of all hydrocodone and 80% of all opiate prescriptions. Just think about that. 5% of the population, 80% of all pain medications. And in one particular uh, type, hydrocodone, 99%. So the prescription wave has certainly uh, led to uh, opiate addiction, and then opiate addiction eventually, when it becomes too costly, uh, turns to heroin addiction. And every, every community is hit by that scourge. And I know you've been hit by that in New Hampshire, just like we have in Pennsylvania, just like, just like every one of the 50 states. Exactly. And, you know, I think that there's this, um, this feeling that maybe I'm old enough that kind of came out of the 70s, is that you're not supposed to feel any pain, that pain is bad, but pain is good. I mean, I remember when I first started working in the profession, I had a mentor, and he'd say, you know, I, he always said, I wish you the pain you need to grow, you know, whether that was emotional pain or, you know, getting your ego cut down or whatever it was, he, he would always refer to pain as something good. And, and for some reason, we have no tolerance for pain in this society. And, and we've, we've educated doctors about pain in a way that I think is totally unrealistic. And from my perspective, I think doctors need to be held accountable and they shouldn't be allowed to prescribe things they don't know anything about, whether it's pain medication, suboxone, insulin, or whatever. I think that they get way too broad a brush for prescribing medications with little or no accountability. You really hit, hit on a really an important topic, and that really is pain. And those of us that are a little older, remember that pre-2000, that pain was fairly common with any type of uh, physical injury recovery. And around 2000, the Joint Commission on Accreditation of Healthcare Organizations decided to uh, create a pain score. And, And for accreditation, you got downgraded if patients experienced pain. And, and a lot of us may remember the old adage, you know, uh, you know, no pain, no gain. Well, all of a sudden, just as you, you know, uh, mentioned that as a society, we became um, avert, you know, we, had, we were pain averse. We did not want pain. And then you had a couple of pharmaceutical companies, which I won't, won't mention, but th- they um, developed this new pain medication, uh, oxycodone and hydrocodone, that um, that was supposed to be the panacea, you get rid of pain. Pre-2000, the only time you got medication like this was end of life and cancer. Now, right. every injury, uh, you know, we, we just became pain averse. And what they didn't tell us, much like the tobacco industry, is they knew that this would become addictive. Uh, we did not know that, and doctors did not know that initially and began to prescribe it willy-nilly. I mean, I, I personally am a recovering alcoholic. Uh, I go for nasal surgery, which is uh, you know a modest level of pain, but I get 30 uh, oxycodone for nasal surgery. I have pain for one day. And, and so that type of thing is happening over and over again, and, and uh, people have become addicted to it. And, and then lead to the heroin. 
Um, one of the things that we really are looking for at the federal level is legislation that has a prescription and pharmaceutical registry so that uh, every physician and pharmacist can see what uh, kinds of uh, pain medication someone is on because once someone becomes addicted, they doctor shop, they pharmacy shop, they emergency room shop to get pain medication. And, uh, and so that has become an issue. So you kind of have three things. You have the pharmaceutical companies, you have the physicians that are not trained, and then you have a lack of a registry so that even well-meaning physicians don't know necessarily what else you have been prescribed. I'm glad you brought that up because there is a comprehensive um, Addiction Recovery Act, which is co-sponsored by Senator Kelly Ayotte um, from New Hampshire. Yes, and, you're right. Uh, that's the one. I know. C-A-R-A. That's the one. Yeah, and that's that's one of the initiatives. There's like seven or eight things that are before Congress right now. Our other Senator, Shaheen, is also trying, is just coming out with a new bill that's going to put $600 million into the system. So... You know, we've got people's attention, and I think that's really important. But I also think, you know, there's there's still very little done to educate um, medical professionals around edu- around addiction, around recovery. I was at a, a at a twelve step meeting with a friend of mine, and it was a discussion meeting. And this one guy, he got his uh, white chip for coming back, and he'd had fifteen years of recovery. He needed a knee replacement. Yeah, the knee replacement, they put him on oxycodone, and five years later, he's coming back to um, get his, you know, his 24-hour chip. Yeah, and you hear yeah, that yeah. over and over again. And doctor, we, we uh, have a facility in Florida, and we've sent um, letters to the ER doctors saying, please don't give this kind of medication because this person has an addictive disorder. They totally disregard it and give them yep. the oxycodone or... Yep. Um, and it's like, seriously? Um, no, you, you're absolutely right. And, and, and this entire phenomenon, which is probably a surprise to many, is actually exacerbated amongst our seniors. Um, this, our, our seniors uh, really are, have, have fallen prey to um, three different medication groups that has become extremely problematic for them. One is obviously the pain medication. The second is sleep medication, with Ambien being probably the most notorious one, and then the third are the the you know the benzodiazepines, you know, uh, which is actually the most uh, abused by our senior population. Um, and add add those three medications to a physical metabolism that cannot metabolize now alcohol at the rate it did when it was when you're 30. Add to that uh, just change of life situation of retirement, uh, loss of a spouse. Here, here's a statistic that's stunning to me. The, the highest rate of addiction in the United States today will probably surprise you. 75-year-old widowers. Oh, wow. People, so in other words, men who have lost a spouse over the age of 75, uh, highest rate of addiction in the United States um, again, loss, spouse not around, loss of purpose, a lot of free time, plus those other characteristics we just talked about, don't metabolize alcohol at the same rate, um, probably on some type of uh, other prescription medication. And 
the, here's the sad part about it is that we just did a survey with, uh, we had it uh, uh, commissioned by Harris Poll just to kind of see how adult children, their kind of reaction to their parents' use. Most, most adult children don't see a problem with their parents drinking and using prescription medication. Most adult children kind of say, you know, let mom or dad sort of be happy. They don't have much else going on in life, as if this alcohol is making them happy. Um, most of them kind of brush aside, the, you know, the falls that they have and other accidents. Uh, so that was very alarming to us. We actually published this in um, U.S. News and World Re- World Report, uh, the, the findings, and they're really quite alarming. So if you have a parent that's 70, 80, 90, it, it is something now to be uh, very uh, concerned about. Uh, another alarming statistic is that the uh, heart attacks was always the number one cause for seniors to go to emergency room. Alcohol and drug problems last year, according to the University of Pennsylvania, actually tied heart attacks for number one for the reason that people over the age of 60 go. And we'll be right back after this commercial to uh, talk a little bit more about this um, surprising information. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Every day, you hear so much about different aspects of the health and wellness field. One day, you hear one thing, and the next day, you hear something that contradicts what you heard the day before. How do you know what's right? Try tuning in to The Cutting Edge of Health and Wellness today with Dr. Neil Nathan. Our goal is to educate and explore this field with guest experts in order to help you take control of your health and well-being. Listen Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health & Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll free number is 1 866 472 5792. That number again is 1 866 472 5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. 
Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods. I'm your host, and our guest today is Doug Tiemann, who is the president and CEO, CEO of Karen Treatment Centers in Warnersville, Pennsylvania. And before we went to commercial, we were talking about the um, epidemic of um, substance use disorders with our senior population. And, um, you know, as with every population, developmentally there are different needs for seniors and whether it's assistance with um, activities of daily living, whether it's uh, comorbid medical issues or illnesses, um, and as Doug was saying, just the whole role identification of um, you're retired and now what? Because you've always been what your job is. You know, I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer, I'm a nurse, I'm a salesman. When you retire and what are you? So there are a number of treatment centers that do um, focus on treating the senior population. And I know, Karen, you guys have been one of the leaders in this. So um, can you just share with us what is good treatment for seniors and how sure. do people... Uh, I really appreciate that. Our staff refers to this as the silver tsunami. Um, today, there's about two, um, 2.8 million alcoholics and addicts over the age of 60, and, uh, and, and according to research, that number is going to grow to 5.7 million uh, by 2020, so that's a doubling of the numbers. So many more seniors are going to begin experiencing um, addiction. And one of the things that we have learned is that um, age-specific treatment is very beneficial, just like we provide different treatment for adolescents at Karen or young adults. Uh, we've also found the same to be true with, with seniors. Um, there's a couple of things that are, that are worth noting. One is, uh, unlike our other populations, our seniors are not buying things illegally. You know, their view is, I'm following the law. You know, I, I only have a couple drinks a day. I follow the uh, guidelines that my doctor has given me. I'm using, uh, you know, uh, prescriptions that were uh, given to me by uh, my pharmacist. So, uh, so just things like language, um, you know, if they're in a group that where, where people are using heroin or cocaine, they would kind of look down their nose at that and say, that, that's not me. If I was ever that bad, I'd be in treatment. So, the important thing is just having a, a cultural comfortableness where they're with other individuals comparable to them. The second thing that's really important is uh, just having a medical staff that understands the, the difference in, uh, how, um, it, it, in how the cognitive and physical uh, debilitation has happened with, with seniors. They, they don't move as fast. In fact, most of our seniors... Uh, who are part of our seniors program have real ambulatory issues because of their uh, because of their use. Uh, many have cognitive issues because of, of their use. So having a you know so having if they were in a group with a 35 year old, it would it would be intimidating and overwhelming. So for them to be um, in groups where there are others like them and being um, led in a, in a way that is beneficial to them is is very helpful. Uh, and then the other important aspect of a lot of this has to do with with uh, just being with peers and dealing with with their adult children and grandchildren and what and what happens next um, because you know 
the loss of a spouse, the loss of their their job, you know, financial differences, being in a in, in a nursing home, all of those things are aspects of life that in a seniors program like a Karen, we can help prepare them for that transition. Well, there's so much. I mean, even uh, not being able to drive anymore, you totally lose your independence. And um, I can't think of anything worse than than eventually having to give up my license and being dependent on everybody else for wherever I want to go or whatever I need to do. You know, and and, and that's a great point because even in dealing with uh, the senior population, there's almost, I mean, we have sort of like two different groups. We have a, a group that's very passive that just sort of feels beaten down like, and then we also have a group that's quite frankly, very stubborn and obstinate. It's like, uh, I'm old, I've earned the right to, you know, get up and leave when I want to leave. I've, I've earned the right to not follow directions. Um, I've earned the right, you know, I really don't care that I can't drive anymore. I'm still going to drive. Um, and that, you know, I've earned that right. So having staff that can deal, you know, that is specifically trained to deal with uh, the population is very, is very important. Because you have all of those different, uh, you know, issues uh, coming up on a daily basis. You know, as you've been talking about some of the, the statistics around um, uh, the explosion of uh, addiction with uh, people 75 and older, I'm, I'm sitting here wondering how many folks are veterans, how many are survivors of some type of trauma that's just kind of bubbling up. I know that when... Um, Desert Storm started, the vast majority of guys going into the VA were Vietnam vets because they were getting triggered by everything that was happening on the news. So do you see a lot of trauma with with these folks? Yes, we do. In fact, um, we would have staff that say that everyone who suffers from addiction has had some form of trauma in their life just because of, you know, what happens under, under the influence. And so... Trauma has become an important uh, part of, you know, the therapeutic milieu in, in dealing with that trauma. Obviously, some have had more than others. I mean, you know, people have had the trauma of, lo- you know, lo- whether it's losing a spouse, losing a, a, a child, uh, losing their job. Uh, some have, obviously, because of this age, we've got people who have been in, you know, Vietnam. Um, uh, we've had people who have been in, in some of the Middle East crisis. So, all of those are issues that that you know an expert staff needs to be able to address. Many of and and as one gets older, dealing with those uh, issues is a very easy thing for a psychiatrist or a physician to uh, prescribe medication, and uh, that as a, you know coupled with the normal couple glasses of wine or a couple of martinis a day, you know leads to a whole host of. Uh, unfortunate issues for this population. One of the other issues that um, I became aware of when we opened up our treatment center in Florida is that there's a a very large, well-known development that has the highest STD rates in Florida, and it's a 55-year and older population. So the whole notion of unprotected sex or or, um, having multiple partners... Um, it's it's almost like well we've gotten this far we're safe we don't have to worry yet it's, there's a very high rate of HIV and other STDs and hepatitis and and with those folks 
Well, I, and again, I think that goes kind of hand in hand with, uh, you know, the alcohol and medication. Uh, again, some statistics, according to the University of Pennsylvania, is they're suggesting that is up to 50% of the residents in assisted living um, facilities, nursing homes, elder communities have an alcohol and drug problem. Um, and when one is under the influence, choices, you know, just, uh, you know, at any age, choices uh, um, become compromised when you are under the influence. And this is something that, uh, you know, we have, at Care and Treatment Centers, we've begun to have conversations with um, nursing home and elder um, uh, care communities about these startling statistics as, you know, as many as 50%. And kind of the, the reaction is kind of stunning at first. It's like, you've got to be kidding me. Not here, maybe somewhere else. And then we start having conversations about it and, and looking at the various incidences that happen and they go, you know, you, you, you might be right. Yeah, this does happen here. That did happen here. Maybe we should have some education for our staff uh, so that they can, we can talk about some level of education. We can talk about some level of maybe prevention. And that's one of the startling things, too, I should just mention from a statistical perspective. Forty percent of the individuals over the age of 60 who, who, who uh, uh, become an alcoholic or addict actually the problem starts after 60. It's not like, you know, so again, 60% was uh, maybe some level of undiagnosed addiction before 60, but I think it's pretty stunning that 40% begins after 60. In other words, people who didn't have an alcohol or drug problem or issue their entire life, and now because of their metabolism, their medication, their change in life, all of a sudden they have an alcohol or drug problem and it pretty much goes undetected by everyone. And, and that's, that's a scary uh, phenomena, I believe. I would agree. And there's a couple of high-end assisted living facilities here in New Hampshire that have happy hours every day. Yep. Oh. Most, most do. Most do. Yeah. And that's, again, just part of the protocol and kind of the, as I mentioned earlier, you know, well, you know let mom and dad be happy. You know, as if, you know, and that's the whole idea of, of happy hour. And nobody pays much attention to whether they're on benzodiazepines or oxycodone or Ambien. It's like, you know, so they go and have a couple. I, I remember when my, my father was at a nursing home, I, I went to see him and, and uh, it seemed like he was drunk. And uh, I got a list of his, uh, his medication, shared it with my medical director and said, you know, and he said, the reason he seems like he's drunk, because he is on medication. I mean, he had, I, I, you know, just all of the different ways they interact. But, you know, they had things so he would sleep. They'd have things so he wouldn't be on pain. They had things so he wouldn't be depressed. They had things so that um, he could um, metabolize his food faster. They had, you know, they had, you know, just all kinds of different ish, it, things. And, I said, and he said, if, and frankly, he said, if he has a half a beer or half a glass of wine, you know, he's going to seem really drunk. Because, yeah. and, and that's the kind of thing, and nobody is doing this because they're, they have poor intentions. They, you know, they think they're meeting the needs, and so fortunately we were able to have that uh, addressed. But, you know, again, well-meaning, well uninformed, um, you know, professionals providing very poor medical care in, in this arena because they just don't know. 
Last week we had a, a physician from New York who was a, who was a neurologist talk about um, the role of memory um, as we age, and she was saying that if if a person uses benz, a benzodiazepine and a sleep medication for a period of time, she didn't tell us say how long, your rate of dementia is higher in folks that are using benzos and um, sleep medications. And I thought that was pretty fascinating. Yes, yes. And we'll be well, right back after this commercial for our final segment with uh, Doug Tiemann, the president and CEO of Karen. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Ouch! What do you think of when you think of dental procedures? Well, when you think about it, the teeth and the rest of the body are strongly connected. What happens in one part affects the other. In the Tooth Body Connection with host Dr. Don Ewing, we'll explain more about these concepts as well as discuss the role that your teeth play in your overall health. You'll learn about amalgams and how removing them the wrong way can be toxic to your body. Tune in Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. We all want to live a healthy, vibrant life. With so many toxins in our world, it becomes an uphill battle. Inflammation is the premise of all disease and comes from four sources of toxins. With a proper understanding of toxins as well as proper detoxification and nutrition, disease can be avoided. Tune in to Whole Healthy Living with Sharon Brennan and learn how you can live a clean, whole, and healthy life in a toxic world. Start your journey Fridays at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. Our guest today is Doug Tiemann, who is the president and CEO of Karen Treatment Centers. He's also the author of Flying Over the Pigpen, Leadership Lessons from Growing Up on a Farm. I'd like to talk a little bit more about um, some of the things you mentioned in your book. But before we do that, Doug, can you let people know how to get in touch with you? They can get the book on Amazon, right? Yes. Yes. To learn a bit more about Karen Treatment Centers or Doug Tiemann, just go to Karen 
caron.org, C-A-R-O-N.org, O-R-G. And uh, to buy the book, you can just go to Amazon.com. And uh, thanks for, for mentioning that. You're welcome. One of the things that you talked about in your book around leadership is transparency, which I think is sometimes heavily lacking. Um, and, and oftentimes, when you are transparent, staff aren't quite sure what to do with it. So um, could you talk a little bit about transparency? Yeah, I, uh, I'm a big believer in transparency. I kind of jokingly would always say that I'm going to be consistent and persistent because I'm not smart enough to, to change who I am. And I think there's the, the nice thing about it is kind of even the old adage of uh, if you, you know, if you don't ever lie, you don't have to remember what story you told just, you know, by being honest and forthright. And, it, and it's one of the things that um, I, I think everyone is, is sort of in a, in a organization is used to some level of politics. And so you posture your position and that was one of the things that when I came to Karen in 1995 and kind of put together the redesign of our culture is I wanted to really eliminate that. I wanted uh, everything to be you know, transparent. I wanted, uh, I became very, uh, I came to an organization that was having some financial challenges beforehand. So I told the employees, I said, every single month, I'm going to tell you how we're doing. You know, there's not two set of books. There's one set of books I'm going to share with you. You need to know how we're doing. You need to know what's going on. You need to hear it directly from me, and you're going to hear the same thing from me that you hear from from your supervisor. And I and and that create by being transparent creates a great deal of believability within the organization, so that when we say something as a leader in the organization, everybody believes it because they know it to be true. It's not uh, you know one set of message for one group of employees and another set for another employees. And when people have that level of confidence in the leadership, they, and whether it's good news or bad news, but they believe it, believe it to be true, know it to be true, it makes decision-making easier, it makes messaging easier, and it also is much easier to have everybody committed to you know, the same goal. So it's something that I, I just believe in real strongly, and I think it's a, really a defining part of the Karen Treatment Center culture is that we are a very transparent organization. I would agree with that. Um, the other thing that you mentioned in your book is around mentoring, and I'm not sure that um, we truly understand what a mentor is, um, and, and where do we find mentors? Yeah, that, that's a, I spend a significant part of the book talking about mentoring, and it goes back to kind of that original story about you know, asking someone for help. Um, You've got to ask the right people for help, and a ment- there's a couple of, of groups that I, that I say cannot be your mentor. Someone within your company can, can't be your mentor because I believe they have a vested interest in how you do. In other words, your boss, your supervisor, a peer, they all have a vested interest in whether you succeed or don't succeed. Um, and I also believe it shouldn't be someone in your family because they also have a vested interest. So I talk about getting a mentor who can be completely objective. And I think objective is real important in helping to develop a, um, your plan. And, uh, and objectivity is real important to determine how well you're doing with your plan. And so I uh, have a whole chapter in the, in, in the book about how you go about finding that person and what they should look like. Uh, just some of the fundamental 
uh, beliefs are. One is I, I think uh, they need to be somebody, you know, if you're trying to be successful, having somebody else who has been successful is very beneficial. Somebody who will be candid, somebody that you really don't have a relationship with. Um, you eventually develop a very strong relationship with this person, but you want them to be very candid with with you, with your plan, with uh, how successful you are, and and uh, somebody who can uh, really help to measure how well you're doing against against that. And I and um, I talk about how you go and find one. And in many ways, it's uh, I talk a little bit about it being a little bit like dating. Uh, you can kind of come up with a list. Uh, you start. Uh, most executives are comfortable meeting with someone. In fact, feel almost flattered if if you call somebody up and and say, you know, I've been real impressed with your career. I really don't want anything from you, but I'd love to take you out for lunch because I just like to pick your brain about what you have done to be successful. Most most executives uh, will uh, you know will accommodate that. And uh, after you've done that with a number of folks, you begin to figure out on, okay, out of this group, which one do I want? And you do, uh, you do a follow-up. And, uh, it's a, and, and when you share with them what, what you'd like to do with them of meeting with them a couple of times a year and talk to them about how to develop a plan, again, most executives uh, have had someone help them get to where they are, and you'll be um, amazed at how people are willing to help you get to that point. So it's, it's something that I spent a significant amount of time in the book about doing it. I think it's, for me, I look back at it and say it's been one of the real keys to my success is having a number of different mentors over my career to help, you know, to help guide me and, and be, frankly, very candid about how I'm doing, both good and bad, because uh, to your point, uh, no pain, no gain. Uh, sometimes it's good to have somebody say, you know, you're not doing as well as you could be doing. No, I totally agree. I think that, um, you know, finding a mentor is crucial to really um, getting to be at the top of your career because there are so many different um, internal obstacles that you have to overcome. And maybe it's different for women than men, but, I mean, to be able to gain that self-confidence and that uh, command of a, a authority, and I don't mean that in um, a power way, but just being able to claim that space um, you know, you need somebody who's been there to help you get over the speed bumps. I'm glad you mentioned about, you know, from the female perspective. I have three daughters, and two of my daughters have really sort of embraced the book um, and have mentors, and they've talked to me about selecting, men- selecting mentors and said, you know, early in your career, if you can find another, you know, female executive that that sort of emulates kind of what you would like to be. It doesn't, again, does not need to be in your industry at all. Uh, in fact, sometimes it might even be good for, to be in a different industry and talk to them about what they had to overcome, any kind of, you know, prejudice or bias or uh, stereotypes, uh, what they've done to you know, maintain, you know, their professionalism and what, you know, what kind of lessons you can learn from that, uh, I think is really valuable. And I say probably if anything has given me a smile on my face is just this, you know, now see my daughters who before the book was published kind of read the book from the stories were, were kind of fun. But mm-hmm. now that they're actually in their careers, actually utilizing some of these lessons to uh, mold their own careers, kind of you know, fun as a father to see that happening. 
Yeah, it must be a, a real uh, sense of uh, pride and accomplishment, right? Um, yeah, it, it 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 really it really is probably one of the things I I think I mentioned before we came on the thing sort of the serendipitous nature of all this is that uh, the weekend this uh, book came out we actually buried my father and I shared some of the stories that doing his eulogy I was the oldest of of the five boys in our family and afterwards we're out on the farm and his younger sister was sharing one of the stories and I never will forget my son saying to me. Holy cow, all these years I thought you made that story up. And I said, I may have embellished the story, but the story, I mean, it was just kind of neat for him to hear that same story that I've shared with my kids come from, you know, my father's sister, um, uh, you know, which was, which was kind of neat and to some way for my kids somewhat uh, validating that, the, you know, the stories there are a way to kind of uh, continue to, you know, live, live their fa- you know, grandfather's legacy as well. Doug, thank you so much for spending this hour with us. This hour really flew as well. It does. And, um, it does go fast. Thank you, and uh, good luck with your, your book, Flying Over the Pig Pen, and, um, and thanks for all your wisdom. All right. Well, thank you, Mary. Always enjoy. I love, love being with you, love talking with you, and I look forward to our paths crossing uh, again, and, and best to uh, Laura, you, and all of your other colleagues at, uh, at Westbridge. Thank you. Have a great week, everyone. Hey, bye. We appreciate you joining us today for One Hour at a Time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.